Well, hello there, and welcome to the very first episode of the Musical Connections podcast. I'll be your host for it, Zach Snow, and you may recognize my work from CBC, VOCM, and VOWR. You may also recognize me as the host of The Celtic Wake Up, which has won an award back in 2019 by the National Campus and Community Radio Association for Best Country Folk Show, and being a three-time Music NL Award nominee for Media Person of the Year, and also two-time award nominee for Volunteer of the Year for Music NL as well. This brand new project will explore the Newfoundland and Labrador music scene even further than what I've intentionally covered in the past. So uh, I've been wanting to do this for a very, very long time, and I cannot wait to get started right now with all of you. So I hope you can join me on this journey as we dive deeper into Newfoundland and Labrador's music scene. My first official guest for this new podcast will be Ken Tizzard. He stopped by back in October and we had a chat at the Battery Cafe talking about everything from the start of his career to his time with The Watchmen, Big Wreck and Thornley, to his solo career, to his work with Ron Hines, and music for goats. Now, we were lucky to be down at the Battery Cafe for it, and you'll be hearing that interview in about a 10 or 20 minutes time. But right now, let's feature this week's new found releases. Now, with this segment, New Found Releases, it's basically putting together a little set of songs of music you should be paying attention to throughout the past week. Now, this week covers November the 11th to November the 18th. And man, choosing this week's New Found Releases was tough. There's some great music that you guys sent me to musicalconnectionsnl at gmail.com. And y'all sent me Wave and MP3s. And for anyone who wants to send them in the future, Waves and MP3s are preferred. So musicalconnectionsnl at gmail.com will be the email to send your music to. We're going to kick off new found releases this week with Trad Trio Kitchen Party. They released their most recent album on November the 12th titled No Word of a Lie. And they've been together since 2019. Of course, their first song was Victim of Last Night. But the, the song was actually Tyler Humber featuring Weight of the World. They didn't really officially don the Kitchen Party name until 2020. And they released their debut album, Got Me Drove, in December 2020 to rave reviews. And I'm certain this one, No Word of a Lie, will receive the same treatment. Right now, let's get to the very first track off the brand new album, No Word of a Lie. Here are Kitchen Party with Never Enough as part of newfound releases on the Musical Connections podcast. Working hard for three weeks with one more left to go. Thinking on the faces I've seen so long ago. Waging 12 or 14 or 16 hour days It's been so long since I've been home There's no time for delay I know you're getting tired Of waiting weeks for me Spending all my time Just rolling on the sea Your phone calls and your messages Are keeping me afloat Until I meet your loving arms When I leave this boat We've got tonight to have our fun We'll be Tonight to make things alright We'll play when the work is done We'll work our fingers to the bone We'll sing these songs till we get home We've got tonight to be with our true love One week is never enough Everybody's storming in and 
and soaking up my floor All my friends and family are coming through the door Poppy's on the squeeze box, mama's singing loud and clear And you're standing next to me, my sweetheart, my dear We've got tonight to have our fun We'll be here till the morning comes We've got tonight to make things alright We'll play enough. Let's get to our second newfound release of the week. It comes from Labrador City-based band Tarmageddon. It consists of Scott Neary, Jen Edwards, and Matt Soper. They have earned two Music NL Award nominations for Alternative Artist of the Year and for Rising Star of the Year. They've been on the go now since last year, 2021, when they released their debut EP, Holding Pattern, and they're 
upcoming EP, which is set to come out November the 25th. You may hear these guys in a future New Found Releases segment down the road, and uh, pretty shortly, I might add. Uh, their upcoming EP, Dream Logic, is set to come out November the 25th. And you can find Tarmageddon on their Bandcamp. To search up their name, go to tarmageddon.bandcamp.com. That is P-T-A-R-M-A-G-E-D-D-O-N.bandcamp.com. Right now, let's get to their song that they just released back on November the 12th. From their upcoming album, Dream Logic, here's Tarmageddon with Lullaby. Right here on the Musical Connections Podcast. Traffic, 
Labrador City-based band Tarmageddon right here on the Musical Connections podcast with Lullaby. Now, we're going from Labrador City back here to St. John's, where Musical Connections is being recorded to, and we're going to be going to indie rock band Greta and the Goldfish. It is the pet project of indie rock musician Greta Warner, and also features Aiden Langer, Christian Spencer, and Nick Rio on the drums. Christian plays bass and Aiden plays guitars and synths, as well as Greta Warner herself. Now, this song is from their upcoming album, Not To Be Outdone. From that upcoming album, here's A Leica Of Our Own on newfound releases as part of the Musical Connections podcast. Goldfish for you right here on Newfound Releases. That is a song called Alaika of Our Own. Now, we're going to wrap up this week's edition of Newfound Releases with a Christmas tune. Yeah, I know, say it's too early, but 
a lot of people are tending to release their songs early to help people get in the Christmas spirit. And we're going to be doing that with Musgrave Harbor born Michaela. Now, Michaela resides in Alberta right now, but uh, she has roots in Musgrave Harbor. And her new song, Snow Angel, was written with my lost loved ones in mind. She says, I really wanted to honor the people I've lost in my life and let them know in my way that they are always in my heart. I've always felt that snow was little kisses of love. My wish is that Snow Angel is the song that makes people feel the love for those that they miss most. Michaela has been recognized with the Josie Awards in 2021 with nominations in two categories, Modern Country Female Vocalist and Single of the Year, and the 2022 Ken Flaherty Music Buffy Award. And she's also a three-time nominee for the Country Music Alberta Awards for Female Vocalist and Fans Choice of the Year. Right now, here's our brand new tune to get us in the Christmas spirit. Here is Snow Angel, right here on Newfound Releases as part of the Musical Connections podcast. boy who never cries their mama tries to explain how life goes but it doesn't end she says no one never really dies and points her finger toward the sky at the great by and by and says we're gonna see grandma again starts to snow this time of year that's how you'll know she's still here she is your snow angel always looking down from way up high above blanketing our town with love christmas isn't christmas without a little snow from our snow angel Comfort comes in many ways We find peace On special days A yellow card with a dusty bowl Takes us back to yesterday The places we used to go Sacred verses I used to know Remind me of things That grandma used to say When the air gets cold And the days get short She'll still be here in our hearts She is your snow With love Christmas isn't Christmas Without a little snow From our snow angel The years go by The seasons come and go Christmas isn't Christmas 
What a great tune there from Musgrave Harbor born Michaela. That is Snow Angel. If you want to get your tunes on for the new Found Releases segment of the Musical Connections podcast, make sure to send a wave or an MP3 to musicalconnectionsnl at gmail.com. Once again, that email is musicalconnectionsnl at gmail.com. Now we're going to get to my special guest for the Musical Connections podcast, and it will be singer-songwriter Ken Tizard. Now, we recorded this back in October down at the Battery Cafe. A huge shout out to them for letting us use the space. We go into everything with Ken Tizard. We talk about his early career. We talk about his time with Big Breck, The Watchmen, Thornley, how the punk music scene inspired him to pursue a music career, plus his solo career, and also his work with Man of a Thousand Songs, Ron Hines. We'll also go into his brand new project, Music for Goats, as well as his wife's battle with multiple sclerosis. I thought I knew a bit bit or two about multiple sclerosis, but Ken blows my mind in this conversation. There's a lot to get to with this one, so sit back, relax, and enjoy my interview with singer-songwriter Ken Tizzard. And welcome to the Musical Connections Podcast Video Edition. If you're just joining us on YouTube, welcome aboard. If you're listening to us now on your podcasting services, welcome back. Well, joining me right now for my very first guest on the Musical Connections Podcast, this guy is back here on the island for the first time in three years. He's played with the likes of Thornley, Big Wreck, his own group, The Watchmen, and with the Man of a Thousand Songs himself, Ron Hines. And he's got a brand new band out, for about two or three years or so, called Music for Goats. He's also the host of the Whiskey Wednesday show, the Whiskey Wednesday podcast, and by the time that uh, we're recording this, he's here for a little mini tour for uh, at the Ship Pub here in St. John's for the first time in three years. Ken Tizzer joins me for, for the as my first interview with the Musical Connections podcast. So good. You can to tell be I'm here. pretty excited <laughs> that's I'm really getting this project underway, and no better way to start out than with you, sir. That's awesome, Sam. It's amazing that you're doing this. Thank you so much, sir. I really appreciate it. And uh, welcome back. Man, it's so good to be back. It's so good to be back. I've had two two breakfasts in a row now of, of Towtons and fish cakes. And <laughs> I, think I, I think I might need to find a leaf of salad somewhere. <laughs> it's great to be back, though. Yeah, so where's your go-to place to for uh, fish and chips? Fish and chips. Okay, well, uh, I love the fish and chips, but I'm actually a fan of the chicken and chips and Leo's. Leo's chicken and chips oh, is yeah. where I go. But if I'm doing fish and chips, I'll usually hit one of the Chester's outlets or the Scampers up by the mall. Um, and this place called By the Bay out, um, out uh, near uh, St. Phillips. And they got oh, a yeah. good fish and chips out there as well. Okay. Uh, but that all being said, when we got here on Thursday night, I rounded everybody up and I said, let's go down to the Duke. And, uh, and have a big old feed of oh, fish and yes. chips down there. And, uh, and we went down to the Duke, and, uh, and I had a hot turkey sandwich that night. So that oh, was, that nice. Was good. Yeah, I figured nice. I didn't want to get right into the grease, so I went for the yeah. hot turkey sandwich. <laughs> like, when it comes to fish and chips here in the city, I think the Duke is, like, the top of the top. I Duke was there a couple awesome. of months ago, and uh, their fish and chips were absolutely yeah. fantastic. Duke, so, uh, Duke Kitchen is, is, is top-notch, yeah. Now, uh, as I said in my intro, you've been here for the first time in three years, and I mean, that guy's excited for uh, <laughs> this being the first ever edition of the Musical Connections podcast, but you're back here on the island for the first time in three years. How excited are you to be back here on The Rock? It's, um, it's always exciting coming back, um, but what's, what I find more interesting is, uh, maybe it's just the way my mind works, but... Every time I turn my head, you know, I, I, I look over and I see a building that, you know, used to be the old fire hall. And I see this that used to be all that. 
But then I walk a little further and I, I see Cane's is still there. And, and that's where I used to go to get 10 cent cigarettes when I was a kid because they, <laughs> they used to sell singles, right? So as I'm walking around, and, and it's extremely hard when I'm performing, like last night at the ship, you know, I'm playing songs and I, I look out and I see somebody I haven't seen in 30 years. And all of a sudden, just these memories come back. And I'm singing a song and I'm trying to remember the lyrics and I'm remembering a scene that happened with this person. Then I turn away and I see somebody else. And, and that's kind of what coming home for me is. I mean, as much as it's exciting, it's really about sort of stirring up the old brain and getting those memories going, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, before the interview there, I was sitting over on the road there looking at the four sisters, uh, you know, sort of remembering all, oh, the, yeah. all the development that I've seen in the 50 years with those, those four homes. And, uh, it's just about triggering all the old stuff. I've got, I've got so, much, so much roots in Newfoundland and, you know, Newfoundland will always be my home. When people say, where are you from? I always say Newfoundland, even though I haven't been living here for 30 years. Um, but I think being born here and, and, you know, leaving just before I was 20, I had all my firsts here, you know, uh, my first steps, uh, my first school, my first friends, you know, my first love. Uh, all of those things happened here first. Um, and I'm not saying there weren't any firsts after that, but, you know, so many of those firsts that you have in your first 20 years that kind of make you who you are, that all happened here. So this place is just a huge part of who I am. I mean... For people that have come here and have left here and came back, how is it not part of their lives here when they grow up? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I and everybody I know leaves and comes back, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I tried many times. I just, uh, I, for, for the longest while, I had a, a career that, that involved a lot of airplanes. And, uh, you know, I could always get a ticket out of Toronto to wherever I needed to be for 400 yeah. bucks. Uh, from back here, though, you know, you're looking at last-minute tickets to somewhere else, and you're in the thousands. So it, it was always prohibitive that way, so Toronto made more sense for me. Uh, yeah. But, you know. Because the opportunities are more plentiful there than you would find here in St. John's. The opportunities and, and, the, and the ability to execute the opportunities, too, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if I'm in Toronto and somebody says there's something in Calgary, can you make it out for the weekend, you know, and it's Tuesday, I can look online, it's like, oh, it's a $300 ticket, that's great. Can't do that from yeah. here. Last-minute tickets are too expensive. So it's about finding opportunities and being able to make them happen. And for me, it was just easier to do that out of Ontario. Yeah. Now, going back to Newfoundland for a second, I forgot to mention at the top here, we are recording here at the Battery Cafe, mm -hmm. and a huge shout-out to them for awesome allowing us spot. to use this space to record the very first conversation for the Musical Connections podcast. It's very cool. Now, um, let's go back in time for a second. Yeah. Uh, what inspired you to you know, pursue a music career? Well... I was young. I used to go to the Avalon Mall every weekend. That's what everybody in town used to do, whether you were in Mount Pearl or St. John's. On Saturday morning, you get up and you get on the Metro bus. I used to get on the Metro bus number 14 and then transfer to number 8, I think it was, down on Elizabeth Avenue. And by 10 o'clock, everybody was in the mall. All the teenagers, all the kids. Um, and there was a games arcade in the mall uh, next to the food court there. And I remember myself and Mike Anderson were there, and I had to be 11 or 12 years old. And there was a guy playing a... Space Invaders or something. And he had on a leather jacket, but he had these cut-off leather gloves with all these studs on them. Oh, wow. And the studs on the lapels of his jacket. And I thought, that's awesome, man. He looks so cool. And I, and I didn't really know much, like, I didn't know much about music at the time. And, and, and it was about that same time that I remember seeing that guy and then going over to the drugstore where they had a magazine rack and there was, like, um, Circus or one of those rock and roll magazines that used to come out. And I think Iron Maiden was on the cover. And they all had leather and studs, too. And I went... Man, all these people wearing leather and studs are playing music. And I, I wanted to find, this was before I even played music, it would have been grade eight, I wanted to find some, some leather gloves and put studs on the knuckles. I thought that would be really cool. And there was nothing in the mall. So I had to come, I was told, you got to come downtown. There was a place, 
it wasn't uh, it was one of the old shops down on Water Street. It was near the games arcade there. And I was told that they had uh, they had leather studs in there. So I took the bus down and I went and I got these leather studs. And while I was downtown, I found um, Clark Hancock and Danny Thomas and Sean Dorn. I think that was some of the first people I met. And they belonged to the punk rock community down in St. John's. Oh, wow. And, um, and in grade nine, um, so that was where I sort of, that sort of got me into the music, like what was happening. Like there was this sort of weird fashion thing that drew me into heavy metal music. Uh, and then I discovered punk rock, which I loved. And in grade nine, uh, Clark Hancock called me and said, I want to start a punk band. Uh, I hear you got a bass. And I had gotten a guitar. I thought it was a guitar from my neighbor that I was babysitting for. And it turns out it was a bass. So um, I didn't know the difference at the time. Um, <laughs> so me and Clark Hancock started a, har a hardcore band uh, called Woffit. And we started playing downtown with Schizoid and Tough Justice and all those other people. And there was this amazing scene. And it was, you know, I, I came from a, a family that, you know, a sort of middle class family. Dad was a fireman. Mom worked at the hospital. Um, but there was a little bit of dysfunction there. Dad was an alcoholic. Um, and as a kid, mm. I was tall and gangly. I wasn't good at sports. I wasn't one of the popular kids. I didn't fit in at school. I didn't fit in at home. I didn't fit in with my family. And then all of a sudden, I found this culture of about 25 of us that used to hang out. And uh, they all had the same things. So through music and skateboarding and punk rock, we all kind of bonded. And that became my adolescent family, this group of punk rockers down wow. here. And by the time 1983 or 84 hit, there was about 150 of us that would hang out on Atlantic Place steps every day after wow. school. And we'd be there from 3.30 till 6 or 7 at night and every day on Saturday. And then the skateboarding thing took over that thing as well. Um, and that was sort of how I got into music. Um, and at that point, I realized there was nothing else I wanted to do. It's really, I mean, as much as it's about the music, it's also about the community, the camaraderie, and finally finding a place where I felt like I belonged. That's incredible. Now, um, you talk about, um, you know, not fitting in school. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. growing up, I didn't really fit in school either. Uh, so, I mean, we both have that in common there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, finding a place to fit in uh, is hard. And especially if, if, you're, if you're one of those people that really kind of wants to be yourself, you know. It's easy to kind of follow the trends and dress what everybody's wearing. You know, I remember grade 7 when Jordache jeans came in. And everybody was wearing the tightest Jordache jeans, and, and we couldn't afford them. And, and I, I remember just thinking, if I had some Jordache jeans, I could fit in with everybody. <laughs> and then I, I slowly realized after that that it's, it's not about what you're wearing. You know, you gotta, you got to be able to be yourself. Exactly. And, uh, and that's hard to do as a young person when you're trying to fit into the world. Mm -hmm, um, for sure. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I'm glad I found my niche. Yeah. I mean, uh, junior high and high school, I used to wear a lot of Echo clothing. Uh, mm. Hoodies, T-shirts. I used to wear, like, these uh, New York Yankee uh, ball yeah. caps that were, like, too small for my head. <laughs> so I actually had to get the size 8 for my head, too. Um, it's probably where all the brains were up to. That's up right, too. Yeah. So, um, I mean, we've all, you know, had that phase of, you know, just trying to fit in, trying to find our niche. And then you said that, uh, you know, you found your niche in punk rock. Mm. So uh, what are some of the names uh, that inspired you uh, to, you know, pursue music? Well, I mean, originally the punk rock scene, uh, thanks to Fred's Records, um, uh, they used to get in uh, regularly every, I think it was Thursdays, they used to get their records in. And uh, we'd all, I mean, the busloads, kids would go down and, and pile through, you know, everything from uh, Motorhead, the Dead Kennedys, Stiff Little Fingers, The Clash, um, minor Threat, um, you know, any of those sort of 79 to 84 hardcore bands, that's, that, that was sort of what really inspired me. 
And at the time, there was a bunch of bands. There was Schizoid and Tough Justice and Wafit and Public Enemy. Um, and Chris Jarrett and a few of the other boys in, in the band started a thing called DUPP, which stood for Dead Upturned Puppy Productions. <laughs> um, and what we'd do is all the bands would play all year round, and we'd pool all the money, and then once a year we'd bring down a band. So like they, mm -hmm. they brought down DOA, they brought down SNFU, they brought down uh, Deja Voodoo. Um, and these were things that would never happen in Newfoundland, right? Yeah. So there was a real DIY scene, and, um, and being a part of that, um, that still sticks with me today. Uh, but yeah, a lot of the early 80s hardcore music is still... Even today, I went down to the skateboard store downtown, um, the name of it, I can't remember, a really cool spot. Do you know the name of it? Uh, no, it's not my Yeah, head, I no. can't remember, but uh, I went in and I, I've been trying to rebuild my vinyl collection, and uh, SNFU is a band that I, I can't find vinyl for anywhere. Uh -huh. And I went in there, I said, any chance you got any SNFU vinyl? He went, I got two records in the back, I think. And he went in, he came out with two <laughs> nice. records I've been looking for. I'm like, oh my Lord. I had to come to Newfoundland to the skateboard shop to find some old punk rock. But, uh, we, got what you, we got what you came for, <laughs> exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> now, um, when I was doing research for this, uh, this conversation, because mm. I knew you'd be in town here, um, I, I did list uh, the names of the groups that you were involved with. I mean, you had your Music for Girls group, which you're yeah. doing that now, which we'll get to later. Um, but the one interesting thing I found was with Big Rag, and they were like a big alternative rock group back in the 90s. So uh, how'd you get involved with those guys? So I was playing with The Watchmen, um, and Jake Gold was our manager. And Jake signed this new band from Boston uh, who had a singer from Toronto. Uh, and this was a four... Humber grad, not Humber grads, uh, Berkeley grads who had been studying, you know, crazy jazz down in in, uh, in Boston, and Ian Thornley had gone down. That's where he met uh, Dave and Forrest um, and the and the full band, and Brian, and um, so Jake said, "There's a new band that I'm managing now." He was managing the Tragically Hip and us, and oh, he wow. said, "I'm bringing a new band in." Um, and we want, they're coming up to do some recording, and we were in recording a record, um, we were recording, uh, I can't remember which record it was, and we were set up at a studio, and, um, and uh, Ian and some of the boys came by, and they loved our setup, so they actually kind of commandeered some of our gear and the studio to do some demos, and we just started hanging out with them and became really close, um, and then when they put their first record out, we took them on tour, they were on tour with us about for, for about two years um, before the record came out, and when the record came out, it was huge, um, you know, In Loving Memory, it had like blown, up, blown Wide Open and that song on it, and they became, you know, as big as anything, so we did, we did one final tour together across Canada, which was the Watchmen and uh, Big Rec co-headlining uh, co bill with the Mayfield Four, uh, who's actually was, I don't know if you know Miles Kennedy, uh, he plays with Slash, and he sings mm. for Slash. And, um, it was Miles Kennedy's early band called the Mayfield Four, and uh, we did, I don't know how many arena shows across the country, and it was incredible. Um, and on the last show in Toronto, Ian met my sister, well he didn't meet my sister, he saw me talking to my sister and he said, who is that? And I said, that's my <laughs> sister. And he said, can you introduce me? I said, absolutely not. Uh, you know, I said, she's a nutcase and you're an alcoholic. And no, 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 I'm not making this happen. <laughs> and uh, anyways, he pestered me. So I introduced the two of them and uh, they ended off getting married and having kids. Oh my God. <laughs> so, um, so at the end, sort of when Big Rec was kind of folding down on their fur in the late 90s and the Watchmen were kind of folding down as well, me and Ian were spending a lot of time together and we were writing together. Um, and Edgefest was happening in, 90, in 2000 or 1999, I can't remember what it was. And they approached us and said, can you guys, you guys want to open up Edgefest? And Green Day and a bunch of other bands were on it. And we said, well, we don't even have a band name, like we're just jamming. 
And uh, so they called us the super group because we had the drummer for Edwin um, and Julie Black, that was Sekou Lumumba, and myself from The Watchman and Ian from Big Rec, and we had this new bunch of music, but we didn't have a band. But we, anyways, we played these stuff and opened up Edgefest. Um, and then um, there was great interest after that. So Ian left Big Rec. One night we were drinking, and he said, let's leave Watchman and Big Rec behind and, and start something new. And I said, well, things are kind of folding down anyway, so, oh, yeah. so let's go that way. And we started what became Thornley. And uh, I did the Thornley thing for about five years, um, and that was when I decided to, the, the, the end, fifth, sixth year of Thornley is when I kind of decided it wasn't really where I wanted to be anymore. I, was, I had young children, I was away still 200, 250 nights a year, um, and uh, the way the commercial music was changing and, and that sort of 90s, early 2000s yeah. rock thing was just... It was getting a little too homogenized all around. It was also around the same time, too, where Napster really uh, came to play. Everything was changing, so the record companies didn't have money anymore. It was, it was a really weird time in the record business, and I, I kind of wanted a break from it. Um, so I left, and I, I didn't know what I was going to do, so I grabbed and started to learn how to play acoustic guitar and putting some of my songs together, uh, and it, it occurred to me that, you know, oh, acoustic guitar is kind of like folk music. I love folk music, and I'm a big fan of Bob Dylan and... Nick Drake, as well as all the actual folkies. Um, so I, I just started doing that, and that the year after that, Big Rec was still having a hard time finding bass players. So I went back and did a bunch of Big Rec tours with them as well, which was fun. Um, but I just didn't want to be there anymore. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's the story of me and Thornley and Big Rec. Like we, we sort of it was a it was a big family, you know. And, we, and Danny has sang on Ian's records as well, and Ian's been part of our records. And you know, it's it's a bit of a bit of an incestuous crowd up there, you know. So. Um, yeah, I've been I've been really lucky to to uh, have been in the the right place at the right time and been prepared. Uh, you know, you, no matter how good you are, you need to be prepared when the opportunity happens. Absolutely. Um, and I've, I've I've been very lucky, and uh, I've had an amazing career in the music business. Um, you know, I haven't had to work a day job my entire life. Um, oh, wow. That doesn't mean that I've had any money, but um, <laughs> I mean you had a good living. But I haven't sure. been starving. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I mean, even you know, in the early days in the '90s and the Watchmen, and you know, when we were doing lots of touring, I mean, there was still we were only taking like 400 bucks a week, week each. You know, just a just yeah. a basically a living wage because we put so much back into it. You know, the music business requires a lot of um, collecting of money and then just passing it on. There's not a lot of collecting exactly. and putting in your pocket. Exactly. Um, and, I, you know, I've, I've never really wanted for much. I'm a pretty simple guy. So, you know, I, I decided early on that money wasn't a factor for me. Yeah, for sure. Now, um, you talked about how, you know, like the whole Watchmen thing that you've done uh, led you to joining Big Racket and, you know, forming Thornley. Now, let's actually go, go back to uh, how the Watchmen really first got started. So uh, what uh, inspired so, you to form that? Well, the Watchmen were a band. They were around before I joined. Um, oh, okay. So the Watchmen consist of Danny Graves and Sammy Cohen, their first cousins, a very tight Jewish family in Winnipeg. So, like, they are, you know, their families are tight. And then there's Joey Serlin, um, who's also part of the Jewish community, and his family was very tight with them as well. So the three of them have known each other since, like, preschool. And in high school, they started a band with a bass player named Pete Lowen. And uh, that band became The Watchmen. And Pete did the first um, McLaren Furnace Room, um, the, uh, the, um, that first record. And then after touring for a year, um, when they were just kind of doing the clubs, um, Peter got married and his wife was pregnant. And uh, he said, I can't do this anymore. So I was working, I had just gone to Toronto, I was playing with a bunch of Toronto bands and I was working at Music Express magazine, that's the only job I've ever had. I was the photo editor. And it was a great job because I got to work with 
photographers like Andy Leibovitz and Herb Ritz and, and all these amazing Anton Corbin, uh, you know, shooting bands like Andy Lennox and David Bowie and REM. And, wow. Uh, I got to meet all these bands and, and work with their photographs and their photographers, and it was awesome. That's awesome. Um, but one of the... One of the silent investors in the magazine was Alan Gregg, and Alan Gregg is a major Canadian figure, and he's involved in a lot of businesses, and another business that he was involved with was a thing called the Management Trust, which was Jake Gold's, uh, Jake Gold's management company, and they had the Tragically Hip. Um, and Jake had also just signed this band called The Watchmen. And because I was working at the magazine, um, and our common thing was Alan Gregg, Alan Gregg moved the magazine at one point, um, from one office to another, a bigger office, and he wanted the bigger office so he could put the management trust office in that space. So I got to know Jake, and uh, one morning I was playing Breakfast TV, which is a Toronto uh, television show. Oh, love it. Uh, it's a great time, and I'd just gotten back from a tour of Russia with a Toronto band that I was with, and we were doing Breakfast TV in, early in the morning, and then I went to work. And I was in the coffee room and Jake said, I thought you were a photographer. And I said, well, I, I, I'm not really a photographer. I'm a photo editor for the magazine. I said, but I'm a musician. He said, yeah, I saw you on TV this morning. He said, the Watchmen are looking for a bass player out in Winnipeg. And I said, no, not a chance. I said, I'm just still getting settled in from Newfoundland. You know, the last yeah. thing I'm going to do now is go to Winnipeg. <laughs> and he said, uh, he said, well, let me fly you out for a weekend and meet the guys and see what happens. And I'd been in Toronto for three years and I'd been playing with a ton of bands, but a lot of the bands there were really focused on you know, it was a lot of Humber grads, so they were studied musicians, and they were they knew the business, and it was really much about building something and building the commercial infrastructure and building this, and it, it was fine. You know, it was a new thing for me. But then I flew out to Winnipeg, and I met these three guys that were just. It reminded me of being back home in Newfoundland. It was like being in the shed with my old friends jamming, and I kind of went, "This, this is good. This isn't about all the other stuff. This is just about music." And I really like these guys. And I was actually looking for kind of a folk band to play with, and this was obviously not that, but I was still a big fan of R.E.M. and Billy Bragg, and that was what heavily inspired early Watchmen stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, I got along with the guys so well, and after the, at the end of the weekend, I just they said, do you want to be in the band? And I said, I think I do. Yeah, the rest of the is history. And then, you know, that was in December. Um, I moved out to Winnipeg from December till May. And we recorded, wrote and recorded in the trees. And then it came out in May and immediately went top 10. And we started touring. We did 22 months almost straight uh, before getting a break. And, uh, and then when the break came, it was time to record another record. And we recorded that. And then that came out. And then it was back on again. And before I knew it, you know, 15, 20 years had passed. It was just like this blur of, oh yeah, you know. Um, so again, you know, just... Uh, Putting in the effort and taking chances and, you know, trying to follow your instincts and your dreams has uh, kind of worked out for me. Amen to that. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, everyone here knows about, you know, the legendary Ron Hines, the man of a thousand songs. Of course, I uh, played through the wonderful Grand Band days and mm -hmm. the solo career he went on to have. Um, how did you uh, get to meet Ron Hines? Uh, what was the story behind that? Well, I mean, as a kid growing up, I saw the wonderful Grand Band on TV and uh, Ron was one of the first Newfoundland singers that I saw on TV. And uh, I was enamored with him as a child. Um, and when I was 16 or 17, I started dating a girl named Paula Nolan, who was Mercedes Barry's daughter. And Mercedes Barry and Phil Din, Phil played with Figgy Duff, um, they had a place down on Queens Road. And I had moved down there with them. Uh, me and Paula were living with them. And Mercedes was really good friends with Connie Hines, Ron's wife. So Ron and Connie were over for dinner a lot. 
And, uh, you know, I was like a 17-year-old punk rocker. And, you know, we got the, the, the drummer for Figgy Duff and, um, or the Boron player, depending on what Noel was doing. And, uh, and Ron Hines and all the Mike Wade and all this crowd around. And, and I kind of knew him from a distance. Um, and then I left Newfoundland about the same time that he got his EMI contract. And uh, we were both just kind of passing each other for years. He was doing the folk thing. I was doing the rock thing. And, um, you know, it was, it was nothing more than, you know, a few conversations over a period of 20 years. Um, I didn't really know him. And then he called me um, out of the blue and just said, uh, I got 14 shows in Newfoundland and Labrador at the Arts and Culture Center. I want you to come down and play bass. And I said, what? I said, like, you've got so many musicians. He said, no, can you do it? And I said, yeah, definitely. And that was how it happened. It was just a random phone call out of nowhere. And... Uh, and I ended up, you know, doing the, a bunch of shows with him in the last years before he died. I toured with him. It was just me and him, you know, me and him in a car, driving across Ontario endless hours, night and day, and doing shows. And, and we just became friends. And uh, so many common, commonalities in our life, too, right? Uh, being songwriters, going through the record company business, being from Newfoundland, um, and, and also having a lot of old common friends. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we, we became buddies before he died and I, I miss him dearly. And uh, oh, yeah. I, 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 miss, uh, I miss new Ron music. I wish I could hear a new Ron Hines song. Yeah, now, but, yeah. absolutely. Uh, and the last album that he recorded, uh, which was in 2016, that was uh, later that same life. We'll get to that in a moment. But uh, of course, uh, knowing Ron for such a long time, you must have a great story about Ron. So let mm. us know about uh, one of your favorite Ron stories for us. Well, <sighs> I'll tell the story of the, that leads to the first song we played together. After he called and hired me, uh, I said, that's great. And then he gave me his manager's number, Charles McPhail. So after I got off the phone with Ron, I called Charles and said, you know, Ron's hired me to do these shows. And he said, who are you? I said, Ken Tizard. He said, no. He said, Ron hasn't hired you to do any shows. I said, yeah, I'm pretty sure I just got off the phone with him. He's like, no, 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 you're not doing the shows. Put it out of your mind. And I went, oh, okay. So I kind of got off the phone and what the hell is going on? The next day I get a call, I pick up the phone and I said, is this Ken? I'm like, yeah, he said, this is Charles McPhail. I said, oh yeah, I remember you. He said, uh, he said so you're doing some Ron Hines shows out here. <laughs> I, said, I said, oh, you've been talking to Ron, have you? He said, yeah. Uh, just bad communication on that front. Exactly. And I said, okay, well, I said, so Ron told me to talk to you to get details. He said, what do you need? I said, well, I need to know what songs he's playing. I need to know who's in the band. I need to know what gear I need to rent. I need to know what clothes to wear. You know, it's Arts and Culture Center. You know, is it suit and tie or is it jeans and T-shirt? And all these things. And he said, okay, I'll call Ron and find out. And uh, he got back to me about 10 minutes later. He said, I can't give you any of that information. Ron doesn't give that stuff out. I'm like, what do you mean? I said, oh, I'm coming down to do a bunch of shows with me. You can't tell me what songs we're playing? He said, no, Ron won't do any of that. I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> so he said, don't worry about it. We got, a, we got a week of rehearsals. I said, okay, that's good. We got a week of rehearsals. So I had four weeks to prepare for the shows. So I, I made charts for every Ron Hines song I could find. I think it was about 130 of them. Full-on charts so that I could find whatever he was playing and I knew how to play it. And we got down, and the week's worth of rehearsals didn't happen. Um, it turned into one lunch where he ordered for me and then opened up his newspaper for the whole lunch so I, and didn't oh, say a wow. word to me. And, uh, and then after we were leaving, I dropped him back to the hotel, and he, I was out of the car standing next to him. He said, I'll tell you one thing. I forgot how tall you are. So when we're on stage, I need you three feet over and five feet back sitting down. He said, I can't have you standing on stage next to me. <laughs> I said, okay, Ron. I said, okay, that's the only piece of information I've been given yet is that I'm going to be sitting in a place where I can't see his hands. Um, 
and then I found out that there was no band. It was just me and him doing the tour as well. So that was terrifying as well, because now I'm doing thousand seaters backing them up. I can't see his hands, and I, you know, I've never played with this guy, and there's no rehearsals. Oh man. So this keeps building like this, and uh, you know, he kept sort of saying, you know, don't worry, man. I, I got faith in you. I wouldn't have hired you if I didn't think you could do it. I'm like, okay. I mean, he had more faith in me than I did. Oh wow. Uh, so we got to the first night, and we're playing in Marystown, and Ron came in about a half hour before showtime and said, uh, "So what do you know?" And I said, man, I said, I got a book here. I said, there's 130 songs in here are yours. He said, oh. He said, is that, is that all the arrangements that I recorded? I said, yeah. He said, all the keys I recorded? I said, yeah. I said, this is exactly the way you did them. He went, that's useless. I don't do anything like that anymore. <laughs> I said, oh, my God. I said, Ron, you got to give me something. He said, okay, we're going to start with house tonight. I said, okay, house. I said, are we doing house in D? That's where you recorded it. He said, yeah, we'll do house in D tonight. I thought, okay, I've got one song. That'll give me, that'll give me some chance to get, you know, s settled in. I walk out, we walk on stage, and Ron greets the audience, and he turns around to me, and he winks, and he says, House and D, and I went, yeah. And he turned around, and he, he started playing 1962 oh, <laughs> in the man. key of C. And I, and I knew at, at that moment it hit me that Ron Hines was going to make my life hell for the next 14 <laughs> shows. But... I learned so much in those next two weeks working with him about how to listen and follow and how to interpret what was happening. Because I'd come from a world of commercial music where, you know, I mean, Thornley could go out and do a set and you could time it almost within five seconds of beginning and ending. You know, we had everything exactly the same. We knew what was happening from one second to the next. And then to be thrown into a situation with somebody whose the keys are changing, the arrangements are changing, you know, won't give me any information but also had faith in me and music that we could make it work, and we did. Yeah. Um, it, it, it was an amazing musical moment for me, and uh, after being you know, 25 years playing music, to have that sort of fire ignited again, um, you know, that's what Ron really brought to me. Um, but that's, that, that kind of sums Ron up. You know, he was a playful cat, he was, uh, he was fun, um, but he was mischievous, you know, um, and he would, uh, he'd always keep you on, on your toes. That's absolutely wonderful, Ken. Now, um, of course, November 15th, 2015, everyone describes that, like when the lights went out in George Street as the light, uh, the night that, you know, the lights went out in St. John's. And of course, <coughs> that's the day that Ron Hines uh, left us. Mm -hmm. uh, what was going through your mind when you first heard the news? I knew he wasn't doing well. Um, I'd been talking to, um, to him and Boomer and his manager, Ron, or his manager, Charles. And I was actually, it was... Uh, just after dinner time, I had gone and I was working on the artwork for um, later that same life. I designed the album. Uh, the, 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 the cover illustration was done by uh, Roger Smith. Was it? Yeah, Roger Smith. Uh, but I had the illustration and Ron was picking, helping, you know, I sent Ron a bunch of fonts. We we're sort of looking at a bunch of old Dylan albums, trying to get the right coloring of the fonts. And so I'm sitting down and I got my big computer monitor and I got Ron's face blowing up this big and I'm moving the fonts around. Ron said he wanted this shade of blue and I was trying to get it perfect and uh, moving everything around. I'm looking right into his eyes and the phone rang and I picked the phone up and, and as, I, as I put the phone in the air, it was Charles McPhail and he just said, he's gone. And I went, fuck. And I put the phone down and I'm staring right in Ron's face and I just started to cry. It was, um, it, I, it was amazing. Um, but at the same time, it was so nice to be staring right into this portrait of Ron while I heard the news, yeah. That's 
just yeah. crazy. And uh, that actually leads into my next question about uh, later that same life when we recorded it a couple months just before he passed. Mm. What was that process like working on that final album for Ron? It was... <sighs> Ron had given me all the songs um, that, were, that had been recorded a year before, just really scratch demos when his, he could hardly speak. So... His voice was very raspy and uh, very weak at the time. Um, and when they recorded the record, it hadn't gotten much better. Um, and I, I wasn't involved in the recording of the record at all. It was kind of, I, I was around, I helped with the artwork and I was gonna try and play on it, but then they, it, in, in my eyes, <clears throat> those last batch of Ron songs are actually brilliant songs um, and I, no offense to anybody involved, but I don't think the album did it justice. Um, I think it could have, I think that, you know, had Ron not been dying and had there been a, a better situation, that could have been a really brilliant piece of Ron Hines uh, recording. Um, at the same time, I listened to it and I love the frailty of his voice. I love the fact that he made a record as he was dying. And he told me the stories of those songs. I mean, those songs are beautiful, uh, absolutely beautiful. Um, and uh, I would have liked to have heard them uh, in, a, in a different setting with Ron, you know, from his earlier years when his voice was still really clear yeah. and he had a good band with him and everybody knew the songs and it was nice because the, the songs are so strong. And uh, I would have really liked to have seen them developed a little better. However, you're dying. You want to get it done. You do what yeah. you do. So for that reason, I also see it as a treasure. Um, I know that when I listen to those old songs, I actually go back to the versions that Ron gave me as demos, because um, they're very sad to listen to. And, and I'm not, I, I don't play them for anybody, because Ron said, don't ever play these for anybody, because his voice was really, really weak. But yeah. there's something about that those early demo recordings that he sent me that are, there's a real beauty there. There's a yeah. real beauty there, yeah. Because it's really Ron, um, it's from his heart. It was, it, he just wasn't thinking about it, you know. He'd just written the yeah. songs, they were new, they were exciting to him, and you know, it was, it, it, he didn't care. He wasn't trying to capture takes, and it, it was just something really natural and beautiful about it. And I love going back and revisiting those. Yeah, for sure. Now, uh, two years later, you actually recorded a collection of Ron Hines songs yourself, and that eventually led to the A Good Dog Is Lost project. So, uh, tell me a little bit about um, how that project, uh, you know, really first came to be. Well, uh, when I was touring with Ron, that was when my wife was diagnosed with MS, and he was actually one of the first people I told. Um, and by the time Ron had died. Uh, my wife had gotten quite ill, um, and I was having to make a lot of changes in my life. Um, and after Ron died, I put on a show called Hindsight, and it was, um, it was just 20 Ron Hines songs as a tribute. And I brought it out to a few theaters um, and did it with just myself and a bass player, Ken Grant, who plays with me now, because that was the way me and Ron played. Um, and then when it came time to get ready to do another record, I was so emotionally stunted by what was happening with my wife that I was having a... I wasn't having writer's block because I was writing, but the stuff I was writing I didn't feel like sharing because it felt like it had all been a little tarred with the paintbrush of her illness, and uh, that wasn't something that I wanted to put out. But I needed to put something out, and I had all these Ron Hines songs prepared, and I thought, well, maybe Ron Tribute. Uh, but I was terrified of doing that because Jesus, how do you do a tribute to Ron Hines? <laughs> so I reached out to Boomer and, and, and uh, Kinsman and Sandy Morris and, and Ron's family as well to make sure that everybody would, would be okay with it. 
and everybody was very much behind it, um, which was fantastic. And I was kind of surprised, but but very thrilled that that they gave me their support. Um, and then I just started putting it together, and um, I actually think it's a beautiful piece of work. Um, oh yeah, I agree. I mean, the songs, you know, you can't you can't get better songwriting. Um, and having, you know, Amelia Curran makes a guest appearance on it, Sandy Morse is on it, Kinsman is on it, I've got some other musicians as well. Um, and it, it's just a beautiful record and, and it, yeah. it, it kind of, you know, it's, um, it's, it's a weird thing when you do a, a collection of somebody else's tunes and then you play them for a couple of years because you, you kind of start to change your own persona a little bit because you get uh -huh. so... Um, but I'm through that now, which is great. I'm, I'm back focused on my own stuff. Um, yeah, totally. But the Ron thing took me down a path, and, and I don't think there's been a show since Ron died where I haven't played at least one Ron Hines song. Yeah. Um, that's sort of part of my, my psyche right now is to continue the legacy of Ron Hines to everybody that I can tell about. Yeah, for sure. Because uh, like, uh, by the time we're recording this right now, you're doing a little mini tour of St. John's, uh, playing a few shows at the ship, and you mm -hmm. uh, got one uh, tonight, uh, the day we're recording this, yeah. um, and you open up uh, your first set with a couple of Ron Hines tunes. All Ron Hines. The first, the first set is, is uh, 70 minutes uh, or so of Ron Hines songs. I think there's 13 of them. Uh, and then the second set, I get into my own solo stuff and the band stuff. And then the third set, we do uh, sort of the best of Whiskey Wednesday, which is a, a, a set of covers, which includes everything from R.E.M. and George Jones through to The Clash and Charlie Pride. You know, old country, old uh, punk, old Americana, uh, and some new wave stuff, some Boomtown Rats. You know, I don't know what we're going to pull out. Um, so it's a three-tiered evening, um, and it's uh, we did it last night at the ship, and it was amazing. Yeah, what a what a hell That's of a good time. Yeah, awesome. Now, of course, uh, you've been very public about you know your wife Allison, mm -hmm. and uh, she's been dealing with MS for uh, many years now. So how's she doing these days? She's doing all right. Um, I mean, she was diagnosed late in life at uh, 48, um, and uh, which is odd for multiple sclerosis, <clears throat> but it hit her really fast. And, um, and it was relentless. She went through all the medications and everything, and they finally said, there's nothing else we can do. And we were looking at her, you know, uh, being in a wheelchair, possibly losing her eyesight, maybe losing some cognitive ability. There was all these other things. And they came to us with an idea of a stem cell bone marrow transplant, of which they, at the time, were still doing 80 year. It was, a, it was an experimental procedure. Um, so we signed up for that, and we had to move to Ottawa for uh, six or eight months. Uh, she was in hospital for the entire time, uh, you know, they stimulate the bone marrow to grow, uh, which is um, which is a painful process because the bone marrow actually breaks the bones as it's grow as it's pushing out all of the the platelets, and then they collect the stem cells from that. So that process is like a couple weeks, um, and then after they do that, they do chemotherapy, three different types of chemotherapy, radiation, um, another uh, another uh, thing using rabbit hormones uh, that they do. And, and this breaks down her immunity completely to like less than a child. Um, no immune system left at all. That's insane. And at that point, when the immune system is gone, they then put her own platelets, her own, her own white blood cells that they collected earlier back in, and that starts to regrow the nervous system and the uh, immune system. And when the immune system comes back, it loses the MS trait that triggers MS attacks. Um, so all of your MS attacks stop. But the process almost kills you. Um, so, you know, when I took her out of the hospital, she was 85, 90 pounds, uh, couldn't walk, couldn't use her hands, you know, I had to feed her, she couldn't even hold a glass of water. Um, and that recovery stayed like that for about a year. Uh, and then she started to be able to walk a little bit again using a walker. 
Um, but one of the things that we didn't know from the, all the treatments she had was that she had developed severe osteoporosis, so her hip exploded. Uh, and then she had to go back in for emergency surgery for that. And after that, they put her on eight weeks of bed rest. And during that eight weeks, the little bit of muscle she had left completely lost conditioning and became oh atrophied. Uh, and because she doesn't have the, neuro, the neural pathways back to, to rebuild the muscles, she's still on a very slow progress, slow program of recovery. Uh, they're thinking it's going to be another two to three years before she, you know, may be able to walk uh, assisted. Yeah. But in the last, you know, the last four years, I've been basically home taking care of my wife. I built a studio in the house and, and a little Whiskey Wednesday production studio. So, and it's all built around her. So she's in the center of everything. Uh, we've basically taken our entire life and just sort of made it very insular. That's um, crazy. And as horrible as it is, you know, uh, this this debilitating disease that she has. We also have a great life, and we really like yeah. being together, and we like the life we've created. So you know, and you spend a lot of time together too. Spend a lot of time. We spend all of our time together now, and um, you know, we, we we just get on, and um, it's made. You know, I, I still used to like to do 100, 125 shows a year. Um, now I'm down to you know, I mean, I don't even know how many shows, but I've got to be very careful on when I go away because I got to yeah. arrange nursing and people to be with her. Yeah, because you never know, right? Well, you never know, and, and also, I mean, she still needs a lot of help. You know, she can't get up and get a glass of water, right? Yeah. You know, so she can't really turn over in bed on herself. Like, she needs help with all that stuff, so. Um, and this is my first time coming out um, for a trip uh, with the band since, you know, it's been four years, and it was like, where am I going to go first when everything is okay? And it was like, i got to go home. back home. So this is, a, this is a healing trip, and it's a vacation trip, and it's a work trip, and it's, uh, it's all these things. But the wife is doing great. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, it's, it's a horrible situation that she has, um, but we're making the best of it, and we're, we're doing really well. Yeah. I thought I knew a thing or two about multiple sclerosis, mm. but you just blew my mind with all you just talked it's a, about. It's a wild it disease. Yeah, yeah, it must be difficult to, you know, deal with that, knowing that, like, you know, I mean, your wife's, like, doing fine and then you had all this happening in like a four-year span it yeah. must be very difficult to deal with it hit really hard i mean in some ways um it was weird because we went into like the doctors talked to us about this isolation bubble that we needed to create uh, and I, i'd never heard the term before um, and we did that a year before covid hit and you know even like when i'd leave the bubble to go out to a grocery store or something i'd have on gloves and i'd be spraying everything i touched and everybody's looking at me weird and i'm wearing a mask and and then all of a sudden, you know, because I was feeling very excluded from the world. And then, bam, and then COVID, COVID hit. And everybody had a bubble. And everybody had masks, gloves, and sprays. And suddenly I was like, okay, I don't feel so bad now. Yeah, you're more prepared than anybody. I, I was more prepared. <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, COVID locked everybody away. And, and we were already locked away. So it was kind of like, okay, well, we're just going along with it. And it, I can't... I, I can't say how, how tough these last four years have been, but at the same time, I don't know, I've, I've met, I got a lot of gratitude. You know, me and my wife, one thing that we started doing four years ago, just because things were so bad, was we had this idea that every night before we go to sleep, I would sit down next to her, because uh, she was in a different bed because of the hospitals and stuff, and we would, at least, we would each come up with one thing that we were grateful for that day. And it can be as simple as, you know, I really like that peanut butter sandwich I had for life, uh, for lunch, or it could be something big that happened. But we had to each find one thing we were grateful for. And I tell you, putting that into your mind before you go to bed every night, that's, that's, that's changed my life. Um, just every day at the end of the day, looking back and having to find something you're grateful for yeah. uh, in amongst all the crap. For and sure. um, 
it's made myself and Allison very aware of the blessings, you know. Uh, we all have something to deal with. We all have bad stuff. That's the story. Oh, yeah. That's the story of life. If you, if, you, if you picked up a book and you started reading it and 10 pages in, everybody was happy and nothing was happening, you'd probably close the book. <laughs> you know? Um, it's these stories that, that make our lives interesting. Um, yeah. But it's also trying to be aware of what you can be grateful for at the same time. For sure. For sure. Now, around the time uh, COVID-19 hit, you, uh, you formed your, uh, another band that you've been uh, on the go now with uh, ever since uh, COVID-19 hit, and that's uh, Ken Tizzard and Music for Goats. Now, music how did goats. that project get started? The, the music for Goats. So myself and, uh, and Neil and Mr. Grant, um, that's the bass player and guitar player I had, we were hanging out a lot with a guy named Luke Mercier. Luke Mercier is a uh, fiddle player. And uh, we used to get together and jam all these old-time fiddle tunes. And I got a call for a show. It was called Yarns at the Mill. And they said, you know, we want somebody to come down and tell some stories and play some songs. And I said, oh, Yarns from the Mill, that sounds nice. And I thought it was a storytelling thing. And um, I found out after it, um, it wasn't a storytelling thing. It was a sharing convention uh, for all these yarn makers. <laughs> and they wanted music for an hour in the afternoon. And I was talking to my fiddle player, Luke, like the day before the show, and I just found out what this was. And he said, well, what are we doing at this thing? I said, I have no idea. I said, we could be playing music for goats as long as, as far as I know. And as soon as I said it, I went, that's the name of the band now. Boom, money. <laughs> and that's when the band became music for goats. But yeah, we did go out to this thing, and, we, and there was actually ladies and men um, sitting there with sheeps and angora rabbits and all these things. And they're pulling the fur out, and they're spinning them, and they're making yarn from it. And they're all just making yarn while we're playing something. <laughs> One of the weirdest shows I've ever done. Oh, man. <laughs> but are some of your favorite memories of uh, being in the music industry, too, I'd imagine. Oh, man. Uh, some of the best memories aren't, aren't the, you know, the biggest and best shows. It's the, it's the weird oddities, you know. <laughs> uh, and that was definitely one of them. Because those are the ones you remember the most. <laughs> yeah. And especially when you get a story out of, like, a band name, you know. I mean, yeah. I, w I don't know. I, I, music for Goats is the weirdest thing. Um, but I tell you, I, I get stopped more on the street when I got a Music for Goats shirt on. And people go, what the hell is Music for Goats? And I'm like, it's actually a band. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. And that's actually spanned into a series you have called uh, Whiskey Wednesday, which mm -hmm. has actually turned into a show and a podcast. Yeah. So what was the inspiration behind uh, Whiskey Wednesday? Well, when, when COVID did hit, like I said, I'd had a year experience. Uh, and in that time, I'd done a lot of research on how to work remotely with people. Um, so I decided that... Um, because I had some experience in, in being shut in, I would take that online for people who are new to it. And uh, it started with just me and an acoustic guitar and one phone, you know, with Facebook and you press go live and play some songs. And I couldn't believe the response I was getting to it. So I started bringing the band in and then I got some more phones to, for cameras and got a little switcher set up. And then we, as it stands now, we've got a, a full, you know, ATEM switching system and seven cameras, a full 24 channel board lighting, the whole thing. We've got a set developed and we do it every week. Um, I have guests on it. You know, I've had everybody from, you know, uh, I had Rick Mercer and Andrew Young husband, Chad Richardson, Sean Panting, you know, that's the Newfoundlanders that have been on it. But also Pursuit of Happiness, Matt Mays, you know, everybody, William Prince, Dave Gunning, everybody wow. I know, basically, I just call them and say, do you want to come on the show? And we have like a 20 minute Zoom conversation and then, and then they send me a couple songs of them playing. Uh, and uh, and that's that's become a regular feature on the show as well, and people love that. And then when, when things started rolling down from COVID, I thought, well, maybe it's time to stop doing this. And I started talking to some of these people, and there's, there's a core group of about 50 people who are there pretty regularly. 
and they're still shut in, you know, either through health issues or through anxiety issues or, or whatever. And this Wednesday night group, uh, even though they don't know each other, they've all gotten to know each other over two years, and they get together and they make a drink and they sit down for Whiskey Wednesday and they talk to each other while I'm playing and I tell stories and it's, it's not something I can stop. It's it sort of has it has a relevance right now. Yeah, because so. once you put the following, there's really like there's no point to stop. Well, exactly, and you know the the thirty to fifty people that are there every week, um, you know, there's them plus the people that drop in, you know, once or twice a month. So you know, during the live broadcast, there's a couple hundred people who watch, but in the following week, um, you know, the reach goes out to about two thousand from there. Wow. I mean, that's more people than I can hit when I'm on the road. You know, I mean, I'm on the road driving and paying for hotels and playing for 30 people a night. I can do it in my living room. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, so I'm not going to stop it anytime soon, especially now that the show's developing too. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm saving up some money now to get a couple new cameras, a couple black magic cameras. Um, and then, uh, you know, I'm going to keep developing the show. Uh, I'm loving having the guests on and I'm getting more requests now for guests too. So it's, it's, sort, of, it's sort of becoming a thing, right? Awesome. Now, um, you, uh, you're doing great work now. You have the Whiskey Wednesday show, you have Music for Goats, and I believe you're working on an album with them that's set to come out yep. in the next couple of months or so. So uh, yep. what else is next for uh, Ken Tizzard? Well, I really don't know. Um, and I've kind of stopped planning. You know, I spent a lot of my life planning, planning for the future, planning to get ahead, planning tours, planning albums. Um, and I realized that in this day and age, as an independent artist, all that planning is kind of for naught for somebody in my position anyways. Um, I'm sort of at a place in life where I get up, I wake up in the morning and I go to sleep at night. And between those two periods of time, if I can do things that I want to do and get things done that I want to do and be around people that I want to be around, that's a successful day for me. Um, and you know, often it has very little to do with furthering a music career. It just has to do with being personally happy. Uh, and that's, that's kind of my goal these days. Uh, and music is the one thing that still brings me an awful lot of joy. So I can't imagine ever changing that. So, you know, mm -hmm. I'm going to make another record with Music for Goats. Um, I'm talking to a few artists who want to make records as well. I might do some producing for them. Um, I'm going to be staying, you know, it'll be at least two years before I can fully get back to touring again, uh, if and if I decide to. Yeah. In the meantime, you know, I'll do things, you know, I'll fly out to Winnipeg for a weekend and do a couple shows. I'll fly down to Newfoundland and do a couple shows. <clears throat> you know, I've got um, places like the Philadelphia Folk Festival and uh, stuff like that. I have uh, sort of uh, invites uh, waiting, so like when I feel like I can go back to Philadelphia Folk Fest some summer, I'll do that. Um, I just can't. I just can't go out and do the full-on touring like I used to. Yeah, because you still like gotta take care of your wife. Yeah, take care of my wife and family. Yeah, just exactly. make sure that they're all right and they're yeah. okay. Well, Ken, it's been an absolute pleasure having you and talking to you again for the first time for me in four years. I mean, yes. But you are the first official guest of the Musical Connections what a, podcast. What a pleasure to be that. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely. A, that's a real honor. <laughs> that's an honor you'll have now that no one can ever take away from yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. Well, Ken, it's great to have you back on The Rock, and thank you so much for doing this. You have a wonderful day, and all the best to you. Uh, with thank you. in the months ahead. Thank you so much. Great to see you, Zach. And there you have it. That is singer-songwriter Ken Tizzard. You can find out more about Ken Tizzard by going to his website, kentizzard.com. You can also follow him on all your favorite social media platforms. Well, on the eve of Ron Hines' passing, which was November 19th, 2015, I have no idea why I said the 15th in that conversation, but that was just my excitement for him being my first guest of the podcast. Huge shout out to Ken for that. 
Right now, let's get to a song that he recorded back in 2018 as part of a Good Dog is Lost project. Here's the title track, right now on the Musical Connections podcast. Good Dog is Lost Suicide above the counter at the corner store With an address and a phone to call Still in all it said, a little bit more it said Hey there stranger, I can hardly believe Someone that I love that much has run away from me And if you find her, you can only return to me at any cost For a good dog is lost Somewhere out there tonight upon a darkened street Running breathless with a wild-beaten heart In all directions on four tiny feet calling Hey there, stranger, well, I can hardly believe Someone that I love that much has forgotten about me Look at all these people Tucked away in their houses Watching reruns Who's the boss? For a good dog is lost And a tired clerk behind the counter says Every day in tiny ways we disappear On a night like this It's better him than me out there For a good dog is lost Sit a fly beneath the windshield wiper of my car Stashed it in my groceries Caught this expression in my rearview mirror It said, hey there stranger I can hardly believe That a picture of a puppy drawn with a crayon Can get to a guy like me Guess I'll just go out and drive around You know I'll never sleep I'll just turn and toss Good dog is lost Good dog is lost Good dog is lost Good dog is lost from his collection of Ron Hines tunes, that is Ken Tizzard with A Good Dog Is Lost. Well, that is going to do it for me for this edition of the Musical Connections podcast. Big thank you to Ken Tizzard for joining me this week and to all of you who submitted music for new found releases. If you want to be a guest on the podcast or would like to submit your music for new fan releases, email musicalconnectionsnl at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, and leave a comment while you're there as well. It'll help out the show a lot. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Musical Connections podcast. Thank you so much for connecting. I've been your host, Zach Snow. Stay safe and please be kind to each other. And until next time, safe home.